The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. What is the Bible? And what are we to believe about the Bible? There are those who tell us, and men in the church speak this way, that we need a new view of Scripture. We need a view of the Bible that is relevant, that the man of today will accept. <clears throat> now, it seems almost axiomatic on the part of many writers that the old-fashioned view of the Bible, what they call the orthodox view of Scripture, and what I would call the Bible's view of itself, is simply to be discarded. We can no longer believe in the Bible, we are told, as our fathers believed, for now we have learned a great deal that they did not know. Science has taught us much, and we have learned that we can no longer accept the scriptures in the way in which our fathers held to the view of, of the Bible. We need, therefore, a view of the scripture that is up to date, a view that will appeal to the man round about us today, a view, in other words, that is relevant. Now I would like to say just a word or so about that before we proceed any further. If we are going to adopt a view of the Bible that the modern man will accept, we'd better notice what we are doing. Just who is this man, modern man? In the light of the Bible, modern man is a sinner who is basically wrong about everything because his mind is darkened by sin. He loves darkness rather than light. So if you are going to present a view of the Bible that modern man is willing to accept, why I'm not so sure that that view of the Bible is worth very much. If the unbeliever is to accept Christianity and to judge what Christianity is, we may very well ask ourselves whether what we are presenting is really Christianity or something else. So I do not think that our task is to try to discover a view of the Bible that is relevant in the sense that modern man will approve of it. For a modern man will never approve of the supernaturalism of the Bible as long as he is still in his sins. After all, it is modern man that is saying that God is dead. It is modern man that is saying we must have a new morality. It is modern man who says, not the authority of law, but love. It is modern man who says, no longer that old-fashioned idea that one can pay the penalty of another man's sins, but every one of us must be responsible for himself. It is modern man who says, there is no hell after this life, but we make our own hell in this life. 
It is modern man who says that there is no heaven, but we are to write things as best we are able upon this earth. That is what modern man says. And if you are going to give him a Christianity that he will be satisfied with, you're really not giving him anything that he doesn't have already. And if you are going to develop a view of the Bible that modern man would have, why, that view of the Bible is really not worth very much. I can't see that the Bible would be a book worth studying if you will make it the kind of book that the modern sinner is satisfied with. After all, you have the campaign speeches of the politicians. You don't need a Bible. The modern man is perfectly satisfied with the idea that he can establish a utopia upon earth. You don't need a Bible at all if you're simply going to satisfy the modern man. <laughs> but that's what we're being told right along. And then we are furthermore being told that we can no longer believe in a mechanical dictation theory of inspiration. Now, if you pick up any modern book on the Bible, the writer is sure to say these two things because modern men who claim to break with tradition are the worst traditionalists upon earth. And the two things they will say are these. We need an up-to-date view of the Bible and we can no longer hold to a mechanical dictation theory of Scripture. You can be sure you'll find that in anything recent that's written about the Bible. Well, so much for all of that. What are we going to do about all of this? What can we believe about the Bible? Now, there's not much point in saying that we should try to get people to believe that the Bible is the word of God if people don't believe in God. If there is no God... Why, how can you say that the Bible is the word of God? And so we have to look at this a bit more closely. Our view of the Bible will be determined by what we think about God. If God is the living and true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the triune God who has spoken in human history, who has given special revelation to mankind, if that is what we believe about God, then we may very well say that the Bible is his word. But if you hold some of these modern views about God, which really bring God down within the world process itself and make God a part of his creation, then to say that the Bible is the word of God does not really mean very much. And so our question, like every other question, can only have meaning, ultimate meaning, if it is based on Christian theistic presupp presuppositions. <clears throat> now I think we have to be careful about that. We have to realize that we stand upon a certain foundation. We are not going to begin with some so-called neutral point and then argue step by step to the position that the Bible is the word of God. For if we do that, our conclusion will show us that the Bible is the word of some 
limited God. We cannot do that. We begin our thought right away with a certain presupposition. We begin with the presupposition that God is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And if you do not begin with that presupposition, you begin with the presupposition that the mind of man is the judge of all things. My friends, let's make no mistake about this. There are only two possible positions, and every one of us has adopted one or the other of these positions. No matter what language we may use, either we are on one position or we are on the other, for there are only two. We posit God as the foundation of all life and as the source of all meaning, or else we posit the human mind as the source of all predication, and we cannot escape those conclusions. The Christian position, without being ashamed, declares that God is, and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And furthermore, the Christian position declares that we have come to that position not through any uh, power of our own, not through any reasoning of our own, but simply because God, by his grace, has brought us to that position. We are where we are by the grace of God, and in the light of God's revelation concerning himself, we would interpret all things. And so I want to say at the very outset, I am going to approach this question of the scriptures with the presupposition that God is, and that God has revealed himself to mankind. Now even those who agree with me thus far, even those who firmly believe in the existence of the triune God, and believe that he has spoken to mankind, even they do not all agree as to what they would say about the Bible. Let's look at it this way. All Christians agree. And when I say all Christians, I mean all who are regenerate, all who are born by the Holy Spirit. And I am not able to go around and tell you just who such people are. No man can pass an infallible judgment upon the condition of another man's soul. But you know whether you belong to God or not. You know whether you are born of the Spirit or not. You know whether you believe in God or not. You know whether Christ is your Redeemer or not. And you alone know that. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we know that we are his. All such people, all that are born of the Spirit of God, believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Now that is true irrespective of our denomination. Whether you are a Protestant or a Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox or whatever it may be, if you are a child of God, you believe that the Bible is God's Word. All Christians believe that. We believe it because God has so told us. We believe it because of the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. For in the work of regeneration, the Holy Spirit, by and with the Word of God, implants within the hearts of the believer 
the conviction that the Bible is his word. That is the possession of all Christians. And every one of us here tonight that is a Christian has that belief in common. You cannot be a Christian and say that the Bible is merely a human book. If you are a Christian, you believe that the Bible is the word of God. But now a further question arises, and that is this. In what sense is the Bible the word of God? And at that point, Christians very often differ. Now there are Christian men who believe in the substitutionary atonement, who believe in the Trinity, who believe in the resurrection of Christ and in his second coming, men that are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, who nevertheless holds what I would call a wrong view of Scripture, who are willing to acknowledge that there is error in the Bible, that not every statement of the Bible can be trusted. How do we explain this? Well, to answer this question, I think we have to ask this one. How can we determine in what sense the Bible is the word of God? How are we going to receive an answer to that question? Well, there are some who say we may consider the phenomena of the Bible. And by that they mean we may look at the Bible and see whether it comports with what we call facts or not. We may see that there are difficulties in the Bible and we may decide that those difficulties are actual errors. Now, when we judge something simply by the phenomena, we are likely to arrive at a wrong conclusion. More than that, we will arrive at a wrong conclusion. Let's look at the doctrine of God. <coughs> we might say as Christians, I believe in the triune God, but I am going to derive my doctrine of God by a study of the phenomena. And what do I do? I look out in the world and I see on all hands the evidences of sin and of evil. And I begin to reason this way. If God were good, why does he allow this evil to continue? Now this is the way the unbeliever reckons. And you hear this sort of thing all the time. These unbelievers are saying, are challenging God. <coughs> Why does God allow suffering? And they point to specific cases. And then they say if God were anything at all, he wouldn't allow this. And they think they have really gotten into the problem. I might do that, you see. And then I might say my study of the phenomena leads me to the conclusion that God is evil because he lets this evil go on and he doesn't do anything about it. So studying the phenomena, I conclude God is an evil being. Now that's the way some people study the Bible. That is no way to study the doctrine of God. If I want to find out something about God, I must allow God to tell me about himself. I must listen to what God has to say about himself. If he is the infinite God, then he being infinite and I being finite, he can tell me about himself 
and I'm in no position to pass judgment upon him because I'm finite. And I do not see the end from the beginning. I see only a small segment of time. And my friends, it's a very conceited thing for any mere man whose life is but a breath to stand up and pass judgment on the eternal God as men are doing all the time. They can't possibly get the truth that way. And it's the same with the Bible. I may study the phenomena of the Bible and decide that this will teach me what I'm to believe about Scripture. But there's another way, and a far better way. If the Bible is the Word of God, why not let the Bible tell me what I'm to believe about it? Now, that is what the church has done throughout her history. When the church came to state her doctrine of God, what did she do? Did she take a vote at some assembly and decide that what the majority agreed upon was what she would believe about God? Thank goodness she didn't do that. Did the church adopt a doctrine of God that was relevant to the men of the third century? Is that what they decided to do? No, they had more wisdom than that. Did the church adopt a doctrine of God that it thought would be pleasing to the most to most people? Nothing of the kind. The church said, let us hear what God says about himself, and she went to the scriptures to see what the scriptures taught about God. And that is how the church defined its doctrine. And that is what the church must always do. The moment the church ceases to do that, she ceases to be the church. And that is one aspect of the tragedy in the proposed confession of 1967 that the United Presbyterian Church is considering adopting. That confession is not a teaching derived from the Bible. It is rather a rejection of the Bible and the sinful mind of man stating what it is going to believe about God and man. That is a departure from Christianity, and when the church does that, she is no longer the church. And this is what we must do with the Bible. The Bible must be allowed to tell us what we are to believe concerning itself. If we ignore what the Bible teaches, we can never arrive at a true view of Scripture. And if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then we are guilty of sin if we refuse to accept what God says about His Word. For what the Bible says is what God says. And that is the procedure we must engage in. What does the Bible say about itself? We listened to the Bible when it spoke to us about God, when it spoke to us about Christ, when it spoke to us about the atonement, about justification by faith and so on. Now we must listen to the Bible when it speaks to us concerning itself. And there are many passages in the Bible that we might look at. I'm going to look briefly at one tonight. And I'm going to leave a great many things unanswered tonight that we'll try to answer in the following nights. But there is one passage that speaks very clearly, unambiguously, I would say, and we do well to hear it. 
It's found in that passage of scripture that was read in your hearing earlier this evening. Paul has just been speaking to Timothy and saying that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make one wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, as it were, had an open Bible all his life. From a child he'd known the Holy Scriptures. And how blessed a life is that has had that experience. From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make one wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul engages in that profound statement concerning the Scriptures. All Scripture, he says, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, such as Timothy, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, there are a number of ways of translating this verse. One translation reads something like this. All scripture is also, all inspired scripture is also profitable. That is one way that it is translated. All inspired scripture is also profitable. Now, I think Luther translated some, something like that. And that translation has been rather widely accepted in recent times. But there's a difficulty with that translation. All inspired scripture is also profitable. That doesn't really make too much sense, does it? Suppose I stand up here and say, I am also a minister. That statement doesn't really make much sense, does it? Because as soon as I say also, I am assuming that I have already said something. If I say, for example, I am a minister and also something else, that may make sense. But if I just say I am also a minister, that doesn't really make too much sense. If you say all inspired scripture is also profitable, that doesn't make sense. You would expect Paul to say all inspired scripture is this, and in addition to this, it is also profitable, and that would be sensible. So this translation, even though Luther did use it, seems to me not to be very good. And so there are those who say that we may render it all scripture is inspired. And that's what we must do. There are two predicates here. All scripture is one, inspired of God, and two is profitable. Those two words, inspired of God and profitable, are predicates. And the first is all scripture, or you may render it every scripture. There are two possibilities. You may say every scripture is in one, inspired of God, and two, profitable. Or you may say, all Scripture is one, inspired of God, and two, profitable. 
In the first case, if you say every scripture, then you are speaking of the scripture distributively. Everything that is scripture you are saying. Whatever is scripture is inspired of God and it is also profitable. Or if you translate all scripture, you are speaking of scripture as a unit. The entirety of scripture is inspired of God and it is also profitable. Now, I believe a rather good case can be made out for this latter translation. All scripture, rather than every scripture. There is no essential difference in the meaning, and if you take it every scripture, <coughs> that is all right. <coughs> I think we can make a better case, however, for all scripture. That, by the way, is, is the manner in which it is translated in the Revised Standard Version, and I'm happy to see that that is the case. Paul then is speaking of all Scripture, the entirety of Scripture. Now, I think that this phrase has in mind primarily the Old Testament. That is, all that is Scripture. Anything that may be denominated by the word Scripture comes under Paul's purview here. And Paul makes two, two statements about all that is Scripture. And this rules out the Apocrypha. This does not refer to the Apocrypha. This does not refer to what men think is Scripture. It refers only to that which actually is Scripture. All that is Scripture, we may paraphrase, is inspired of God and profitable. Now let us look then at that word inspired of God. That is the translation of a Greek word which may be pronounced theotnistos. And the translation inspired of God is an unfortunate translation. I do not think we should speak of the inspiration of the Bible because that word is likely to be misleading. That word inspiration comes to us through the French from the Latin and it means to breathe in. And if we speak of an inspired scripture, what we have in mind is a body of writings into which God has breathed something. Now that is not what Paul is talking about. We read a poem and we say, I am inspired. The poetry inspires me. And what we mean is that the poetry has breathed something into us so that as a result we are enthused because of what we have read. <coughs> or we hear a piece of great music, and we say that music is inspired. And by that we mean that the composer has breathed something into that music. Or if we say that the music inspires me, we mean that we are thrilled, we are aroused, we are excited because of the music. It has breathed something into us. Now, make no mistake, the Bible is an inspiring book. There are parts of the Bible that are very inspiring. The 20th chapter of Acts, for example, which gives us the account of Paul's farewell with the elders of Ephesus. Surely that is inspiring. The man that can read that 20th chapter of Acts without being inspired, I think, has something the matter with him. Or read the 40th chapter of Isaiah to take another example. Who can read that? without being deeply moved at the very beauty of the language itself. It inspires us. But that is not what Paul means. 
Paul is not saying that the scripture is inspiring, though that is true. But that would really be somewhat of a trivial statement at this point. Paul is saying something far more profound than that. Far more profound than that the scriptures are inspiring. The word which Paul uses here, theopnostos, means not something into which God has breathed, but rather something that is breathed out by God. Something that is spirated. Something that is God-breathed. It would be far more accurate to speak about the expiration of the Bible. But don't go around doing that. (laughs) Because you can be sure people will misunderstand that. (laughs) I think perhaps the best word to use is that the scriptures are God-breathed. That's what Paul is saying here. Not that the scriptures are a body of writing into which God has breathed something, not at all, but rather that the scriptures themselves are God-breathed. That is, they are breathed out of the very mouth of God. That is the same thing as when the Old Testament says, For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Think of that phrase, The mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Spoken it. That is, the scriptures are of divine origin. That's what Paul is saying here. He is concerned with the divinity of the Bible, that all of scripture is God breathed. Now, just take a minute to let that sink in and think about that. All Scripture. That means those parts of the Scripture that you and I may not understand. It means those parts of the Bible that we may not read so often. It means those parts of the Bible that don't seem very important to us. The list of the judges, for example. The genealogies in First Chronicles. The book of Ecclesiastes or Esther. Some of those things that we might say are not so important. The Song of Solomon. Everything that is Scripture is God-breathed. The minute you realize that, you don't talk anymore about the Scripture, any part of it, not being important, not being necessary. All of it is God-breathed. And this is the advice, and this is what Paul was giving to Timothy. This is what Paul wanted Timothy to believe. And this is the very opposite of what men are saying about the Bible today. Today, the emphasis is all upon the human side of the Bible. That's all you get all the time. Studies in the origin of the biblical books to try to find out what the ancient Hebrew writers thought. That's what the church is being given today. That's what this proposed confession of 1967 says. These are the words of men. That's what the modern theologian thinks the world needs. Paul thought that Timothy needed the very opposite, to know that the scriptures are God-breathed. Just one thing more, for our time is almost up. 
And I'm not beginning to give a full-orb doctrine of Scripture tonight. I'm going to go on with this, of course, in the nights to come. The second thing Paul says is that all Scripture is profitable. And he points out the manner in which it is profitable. It is profitable for doctrine. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Now, you and I may not see how that can be, but we neglect Scripture at our own peril. All of it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. And don't misunderstand that phrase. Young man said to me, I don't see why you object to correcting the Bible when the scripture says that all of it is for correction. (laughs) I don't think that's exactly what the apostle meant right there. It is for correction, that is, that we might live right, for instruction in righteousness. Every bit of it is for these purposes, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And I think one reason why the man of God so often is not perfect and is not thoroughly furnished unto every good work is that he neglects the scripture. All of it is profitable. You talk about the relevancy of the Bible, the whole Bible is relevant. The whole Bible is needed. That is what Paul is trying to say here. He is stressing the divine origin of the scriptures. And what Paul says here is no isolated statement. This is what the whole Bible says concerning itself. It cries out that it comes from God, that this is God's word, the whole scripture. But I want just to bring one thing before you before we close. And I want you to be thinking about it because we're going to take it up again tomorrow night. I pick up a copy of the Bible, and this copy obviously is not God-breathed. It was printed on some printing press somewhere. And it would be wrong to say that this particular copy is God-breathed. No copy of the Bible is God-breathed. The only God-breathed scripture is the original. We're compelled to that. Now, that raises some problems, which I want to deal with tomorrow night. But in the nature of the case, if Scripture is God-breathed, it is the original that Paul is referring to. On the other hand, the second predicate, it is profitable, refers to Scripture as such for doctrine, for reproof, and so on. Now, I've raised a problem, and I realize that. And I'm not going to say more about it tonight. But I am going to say more about it, the Lord willing, tomorrow night. Just remember, however, the first and the fundamental point in our approach to the Scripture is this. The Scripture claims to be the Word of God. It is God-breathed. And that is why it is profitable for these various purposes that the Apostle has mentioned. And God grant that we may ourselves accept what the Apostle Paul says, and that we may look upon Scripture as divine in its origin.
Last evening I spoke to you from the verse in the second epistle of Paul to Timothy in which Paul spoke of all scripture as being God-breathed. I placed quite a bit of emphasis upon the word that Paul uses there, the Greek word theopneustos, and insisted that that meant God-breathed, that the scriptures were breathed out by God, that is, they are of divine origin. It was that point that the apostle wanted to make when he was writing to Timothy, for it was that which he wanted Timothy to understand. Timothy had known these scriptures since a child, and the reason why these scriptures were profitable for Timothy was that they came from God, they were of divine origin, they were God-breathed. Now it is necessary to consider one or two points that arise in this connection. It has been said, and it is being said today more and more, that when Paul wrote these words, what he had in mind was simply the copies of the Bible that were extant in his day. He was not thinking about an original autographer. The word autographer simply means that which was written by the very hand of the original writer. All that Paul had in mind were the copies of the Bible that were extant in his time. <coughs> Now the argument goes on a step beyond that. The copies of the Bible that Paul had in his day and the copies of the Bible that you and I have today have errors in them. I'm sure that if you pick up the Bible, you may find that there are some errors in the Scriptures. I was reading some time ago the Scriptures in a church. And I noticed that one of the words in the printed Bible was actually misspelled. That is an error in that particular copy of the Bible. But does it follow from that that there are errors in the Scriptures? If you see Paul is talking about the copies of the Bible that are extant in, were extant in his day, then very obviously... He was talking about copies of the Bible that had some errors in them. But I want to make clear what I mean by that. When I say there are errors in the copies of the Bible extant, I mean textual errors. Errors that creep into anything that ordinary human beings write. If you will take, let us say, the first chapter of the Gospel of John and just copy that chapter out in longhand, it is very likely that you may make an error in doing that. It's quite possible that as you copy, you omit a word. Or you might write one word twice. Or you might misspell a word. It's quite possible that you would do that. And that would mean simply that there was an error in the copy of the Bible or that chapter that you had made. It does not mean, however, that there are errors in the Bible. You see what I'm getting at? Those who say that Paul had in mind only the copies of the Bible in his day want to go on and say, these copies have errors, and so there are errors in the Bible, 
and we have no such thing as an errorless Bible. And then the accusation is, is raised against some of us when you posit an inerrant original you're talking about something that does not exist. You're talking about something that you have never seen, that you really know nothing about. And that is a kind of a convenient escape to maintain that the Bible is free of error. Well, now, why would anyone talk about an original, the autographer, the original copies of Scripture? There is in the United States a, a society known as the Evangelical Theological Society. I believe that a number of Canadian ministers belong to it also. And it has a very brief doctrinal statement. I don't know who was responsible for drawing up this doctrinal statement, but it has been one of the most unifying statements that I have ever seen. All you have to subscribe to if you belong to this society, well, you have to have a few degrees and six dollars and a few things like that, but all you have to do to belong to this society is to subscribe to this brief statement. And this is what it says, that the Bible and the Bible alone is the word of God inerrant in the autographer. That's all it says. I hope I've quoted it correctly. That's all it says, and that has united evangelicals of a number of different denominations. These men differ among themselves on quite a number of points, but they are at one in maintaining that the Bible in the autographer is inerrant. Now, why are they doing that? Are they really trying to avoid a difficulty? Are they actually seeking to avoid the fact that there are errors in the extant copies of the Bible? No, that isn't what they're doing at all. They are not appealing to the autographer as a kind of a convenient way out of the difficulty. And the accusation to the effect that they do that is really an unjust accusation. Well, why then do they appeal to the autographer? What is the point of doing that? The point of doing it is simply this, that the Bible compels us to do that. When Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, he means simply that scripture is spoken by the mouth of God. Now the copies of the Bible in extant today were not spoken by the mouth of God. If you were to sit down and copy out that first chapter of John, that would be a part of the Bible, but that would not be spoken by God at all. That isn't the origin of it. It originated in that you copied it from a printed copy of the Bible. And it simply would not be true to say that the Bibles that we have in our hands today are God-breathed. They are not. Not at all. Paul is talking about the origin of the Bible. And the language that Paul uses makes no sense unless it apply to the copy of Scripture that comes immediately from the hand of God. And that is the reason why 
evangelicals and Roman Catholics and others are zealous to maintain that the orthographer are the inspired scriptures, the God-breathed scriptures. They are the spoken word of God. Now, the manner in which God breathed forth the scripture is an entirely different question. The Bible is almost silent on the question of the mode of its inspiration or of its God-breathed character. The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to reveal unto us how God has breathed forth the Scripture. But there are certain things we may say which the Bible itself permits us to say. We may surely say that the Bible did not drop down from heaven. It did not come to us in some mechanical way. And in order to develop this theme a little bit more that I may point out wherein the authority of the Bible lies, I want to ask your attention, invite your attention to another passage of Scripture. What Paul has said has dealt only with the divine origin of the Bible. Peter, in his second epistle on the 21st verse of the first chapter, says something further concerning the origin of Scripture. And we must pay attention to what Peter says. He says that the scripture came not by private interpretation, and by that he means simply that it is not the result of the investigations and the studies of individual men, but rather holy men of God's sake as they were born by the Holy Spirit. Now he uses a Greek participle there, pheromenoi, which means literally being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is saying by that participle is precisely the same thing that Paul is saying when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Let us notice this situation that Peter brings to our attention, for he goes a step beyond what Paul has said. The Scripture was spoken out by men who were born by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, who is God himself, and not merely a divine influence, the Holy Spirit actively superintended holy men of old. And as these holy men spoke, they spoke not from their own hearts, not as a result of their private investigation, but they spoke as being born by the Holy Spirit. In a very real sense, they were passive, and the Holy Spirit was active. They spoke what the Holy Spirit commanded them to speak. Nevertheless, we must notice the fact that they did speak. The writers of Scripture were active in the sense that they did write Scripture. Now, that is not a contradiction. They were passive in that the origin of the Scripture is divine. They were born, pheromenoi, by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, they were active in the sense that they did speak. They did write the Scripture. 
And so we may say that there truly is a human side to the Bible. And the conservative or the evangelical is as zealous as anyone. In fact, he is the only one that has the right to be zealous about this. He is zealous to guard the human side of the Bible. The Bible is not a book that in some magic way was dropped down from heaven. Now, the Muslim view of the inspiration of the Koran comes pretty close to that. A book written in perfectly pure Arabic. And if you want to keep on the good side of them, you don't mention the Latin words in the first surah. But that is not what we maintain for the scripture. It did not originate in some magical way. How did it then originate? Well, if we take what has been said here, I think we may say that the Spirit of God, in his providence, prepared certain holy men of old to write the Scriptures. And when those men set about writing the Scriptures, they acted as responsible authors, as responsible writers. I believe that they must have written down and crossed out and rewritten just as a writer does today. But the resultant product was the very word of God and consequently it is was precisely what God desired to have written. Now there is mystery there. If you will open the prophecy of Amos, for example, you will find that it speaks about the words of Amos which he saw. And that's a very true statement. Similar statements appear with most of the prophetical books. These were the words of Amos. In a very true, a very real, a very genuine sense, Amos chose these words. They reflect his personality. Nevertheless, they were the words of God. They were words which he saw, and that means he saw them by revelation. When you come to the New Testament, for example, you have the epistles of, of, of Paul. Now you know well enough that Paul lets his personality shine through those epistles. You realize a great deal about the character of the man Paul as you read those epistles. They are in a very genuine sense his own epistles. Nevertheless, they are the word of God. And I do not mean to say that there was a co-authorship, a cooperative venture at all. Not that God was part author and Paul was part author. That is not what the Bible teaches. God is the author of Scripture. And yet, in a certain sense, there is a human author. And in a very real sense, that human author wrote as a responsible human being. Nevertheless, the origin of the words, the origin of the scripture is with God. Now, how can that be? Well, I don't think we can ever answer that question. There is mystery in this doctrine, just as there is mystery in every doctrine of the Christian faith. There is mystery in the doctrine of God. There is mystery in the doctrine of the person of Christ. There is surely mystery in the doctrine of the atonement. 
the doctrine of justification by faith, of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to his people, and so on. Every doctrine of our faith has mystery within it. Because Christianity is a supernatural religion, it is not the invention of the mind of man. It is of God, and the finite mind cannot comprehend it. We may probe the mysteries of our religion, but we shall never fully comprehend them. And we can only cry with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. And so in this doctrine also there is mystery. How the Spirit of God could have used a man so that the resultant product was truly the word of God and yet in a certain sense the word of the human writer is a mystery that we cannot fathom. Yet that is what the Bible would have us believe concerning itself. Now there are objections. And I'm only going to mention the one. It is an objection of the neo-Orthodox to this view. It is said that everything human is finite and everything human is liable to err. Now that isn't exactly true, by the way. Adam did not err until he sinned. I would say that everything that is sinfully human is liable to err. But error is not a part of humanity itself. It is not natural. You and I are not in a natural condition when we have sinned. Sin is unnatural. The natural thing would be that we had not sinned, but we have sinned. But we are told that everything human is liable to err. So when the word of God came to the human writers, it naturally partook of the character of humanity. Oh, they use a lot of analogies such as the servant form of the word and so on. And they erroneously compare this with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word, you see, has passed through human channels, has been mediated by human beings, and therefore the word partakes of error. It's just as though the sunlight were to shine into the room, but the window is dirty, and the light is modified by the dirt on the window, so that what comes into the room is not the pure sunlight at all, but something that has been modified by the dirt on the window. That is a very general statement of the objection that is made today. As a result of that, there must be error in the Bible, we are told. The Bible has partaken of human character, and it is in servant form. And consequently, we cannot maintain the verbal inspiration of the Bible. We cannot maintain that the Bible is without error. We cannot say that it is infallible, because it has come through human channels, and therefore error has adhered to it. Well, now, what should we say about a thing like that? First of all, that really, whether it's intended to or not, it makes man the one who determines what things are going to be. God supposedly has given us a pure revelation, 
But God hasn't been able to get that pure revelation across to us. He used fallible human beings and they ruined that revelation by being human, that which was fallible attached to the revelation, so we have a revelation that is full of error today. You see, that rather detracts from the character of God, this statement that God could only use human beings and they're in such a position that they can somehow affect that revelation. What kind of a God is he that is unable to superintend human beings so that they will write down what he wants written down? Or what kind of a God is he that cannot give his word to the prophets so that they speak forth just exactly what he wants? In Deuteronomy 18:18, the Lord says, I will place my words in his mouth and he will speak unto them all that which I command him. But that verse isn't true. If the orthodoxy is correct and this modern objection holds good, we would have to rewrite that word, those words to say something like this. I will place my words in his mouth, but his mouth is a fallible mouth, and consequently my word will become fallible when it comes into his mouth and he will declare unto them not all that I have commanded him, but just as much as a part of what I have commanded him and a lot of error in addition. That you'd have to rewrite the verse to say something like that. Now then, is God really thus limited that he cannot give his revelation to human beings? We're getting back now, you see, to what is fundamental. The modern neo-orthodox viewpoint or the dialectical theology or whatever you want to call it will not posit the objective metaphysical existence of the triune God and consequently it does not have any true supernatural revelation. If you will read Karl Barth's dogmatics, you will notice that even his formal statement of the Trinity is not the biblical position. He presents instead a form of Sabellianism or modalism. That is, that God now appears as Father, now as Son, now as Holy Spirit. Not that there is one God and that in the fullness of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That is not what you get in this neo-Orthodox work. We have no belief in the triune God and consequently supernatural revelation, special revelation is denied. They oppose the orthodox view, criticizing it as being static, as being rationalistic and so on, and they would bring in a dynamistic conception instead which is not the teaching of the Bible. So I would say then, the real question is whether the triune God can make his ways known unto us. And he says he's done it. The Bible teaches us that, and he has done it. And that's the real question at issue. So I would change this illustration. Instead of the sunlight coming in and being affected by dirt on the window, Let's say this, that God sends the sunlight 
But God has so arranged the color of the glass that the sunlight that comes into the room comes in precisely as he wanted it to come in. The Bible does not say that God just looked around to find some man here or there and compelled him to write scripture. Not at all. It would seem that God chose his own instrument to write scripture. And in the course of providence, he prepared them by their training. Think of the training of the Apostle Paul. He was fitted through that long period of education, first at the feet of Gamaliel, and then in the Arabian desert. He was fitted for his ministry and fitted for writing the epistles. He was brought up a Jew, yes, but in a Greek-speaking city where he could write the Greek language as beautifully and effectively as it has ever been written. A long period of training is necessary for that. And when the proper time came, the Holy Spirit used the apostles, superintending him, so that what Paul wrote down was just exactly what God wanted written down. And that, my friends, is really the doctrine of Scripture that is presented in the Bible. But I would bring to your attention once more this consideration that when we speak of the revelation of Scripture, or when we speak of the Scripture as God breathed, we are speaking of the original copies of the Bible. In the nature of the case, it must be just that. Paul's original is lost, of course. And I don't think we're ever going to find it. And I rather think that one reason why we're not going to find it is that if we did, people would capitalize on that. They would worship it. They would build a shrine over it. And people would bow down to that scripture, that object, rather than submit themselves to the word of God. We're very superstitious. And I think God has shown remarkable kindness to us in not letting us have the autographa of scripture. We wouldn't know how to handle those autographers. We would come pretty close to idolizing them and bowing down to them. And that, of course, would be wrong. That would be bibliolatry, the thing that most of us are accused of even now. But you see, the situation is this. Those originals are lost. So people say, well, then you don't have an inspired Bible. You don't have a God-breathed Bible. And they say, what difference does it make? Men are saved with the imperfect copies that we have, so what harm does it do to admit that there may be errors in the Bible? Well, when men talk that way, they simply haven't faced up to the issue, or they haven't seen the issue. I was in a group of ministers not, uh, meeting not so long ago, and one of them got up and said, suppose there is an error in the original. What difference does it make? It doesn't affect the message. But the point is this, the original is what God spoke, what he breathed forth. And if God breathed forth one error, how do we know that he didn't breathe forth more than one error? Can we say that the word of God contains error? That's what you're saying. 
when you say there may be one error in the autographer. And that's the question we have to face. But in answer to these objections, I think we can say this. It's perfectly true that men are saved today by hearing a scripture that is not the original. What they hear is a translation. Sometimes the translation is not always the best. They are saved by the word of God, which is preached from a book that may have an error in it. I'm sure that that one particular copy of scripture to which I referred with a misspelled word may have been used of God to bring the truth home to many a soul. But there's an error in that particular copy of the Bible. Well, now, why then are we insisting upon this original? Or let us look at it this way. I want to use an illustration that I've used a number of times before. <coughs> let us say that a school teacher writes a letter. Now, I've said she writes it to the President of the United States. I don't care to whom she writes it. She gets an answer, let us say. And you know what she would do when she got that answer. She'd be very proud of that answer. And she would read that answer to her pupils. And she would probably have them copy down that letter. She'd dictate it to them. I'm pretty sure she would. Suppose she has 20 pupils. And she dictates this letter to them. And they all copy it down. Now, for the sake of my argument, she somehow or other loses the original. I don't know how, but let's get it lost. And so the original is lost. And all we have are the 20 copies that the pupils have written. Now, do we have the message of the president? Well, of course we have it. We know exactly what he said. But now you take up these 20 copies, and here it's springtime, a little further than the first day of spring, and the sun is shining outside, and little Johnny is thinking more about baseball than he is about copying down a letter, and he misspells a word. And little Mary is somewhat absent-minded, and she writes one word twice. And somebody else forgets to dot his I's and cross his T's, and somebody else leaves out a word. All right. Those are the copies that we have. Now, I submit anybody could read those and know what the president had said. And furthermore, we could restore the original by engaging in the science of textual criticism. Where a word has been left out, we supply that word. Where a word has been written twice, we call it dictography, and we cross out one word. Where the I's have not been dotted and the T's have not been crossed, we take care of that. Where there are misspelled words, we correct that. And if there is any question, we compare two or more of those copies to make sure that we are getting at the original. Now then, the copies of the Bible that are extant today have minor errors in them of that nature. There is no error that affects any doctrine of Scripture, that affects the message of Scripture. The copies of the Bible that we have are remarkably accurate. Now, I can speak with more authority upon the Old Testament than upon the New. But it is now known that the Hebrew of the Old Testament has been transmitted to us in a most remarkable way. And the man who would say that the Hebrew is inaccurate, 
I think, really has little knowledge of the situation. I don't want to go into the details of that now, but that is really the case. So do not be troubled when people say that the copies of the Bible extant may have errors in them. Those errors are very minor. They are errors that more and more can be corrected, and we can be sure that we have practically approximated the original. We have the Word of God, and this is what God uses and what God blesses. And the conservative is as concerned as anybody else to engage in this study of textual criticism. This, then, is the Scripture, the revealed Scripture that God has given to us. It is of divine origin, yet it was given to us through men. It is a Scripture that is verbally inspired, that is, each word con constituting a part of Scripture was breathed out by God. We believe in plenary inspiration, by which we mean that the entirety, the fullness of Scripture, is God-breathed. We do not necessarily say that it was mechanically dictated. That means that God used the writers as though they were a typewriter, and that they had no responsibility at all. Not at all. That is not what conservatives believe. They never have maintained that. But may I just say this in passing? Suppose that were true. Suppose God had somehow spoken through a man and that man were completely passive as God spoke through him. Is there anything derogatory in that? Could there be any higher honor given to man than for the triune God to use him in that way? Even if the Bible were given in that way, there is nothing derogatory about that at all. There's nothing derogatory about the work of a secretary, even though she does not contribute to the manuscript that she is typing. She is engaged in a perfectly honorable work. And I cannot understand why men think that somehow, if God had given the Bible by dictation, that that is a kind of a dishonorable thing, and they disparage it. But God did not do that. Oh, it may be that certain parts of the Bible were dictated to the writers. We don't know. It is quite possible. Calvin uses that term in discussing 2 Timothy 3.16. But we do know that the writers of the Scripture were treated as responsible human beings. This, then, is the Scripture. And wherein does its authority lie? What is the authority of the Scripture? Well, my friends, it does not derive its authority from the church. It does not derive its authority from the fact that the church says it is authoritative. Not at all. For the church also is God's creation. And the church is composed of men. And mere men in themselves are not able to impart authority to the word of God. That is not the case. We are told also that the authority of the Scripture resides in Christ. Christ is the authority of the Scripture. Now there is a certain sense in which that is true, but that does not tell us the whole truth. And when you say that, you are on dangerous ground. There are those today who want to make a separation, as it were, between Christ and the Bible. They call us bibliologists. 
They tell us that we worship the Bible, whereas we should worship Christ. Now, that's true enough. Nobody should worship the Bible. But, frankly, I have never yet met anybody that does worship the Bible. This charge of bibliolatry is an unfair charge. It's an untrue charge. Have you ever met anybody that worships the Bible? That charge just is not true. We don't do that. We worship Christ. Surely we do. But you see what kind of a disjunction they are introducing. They want to exalt Christ in order that they may belittle the Bible. And when we would exalt the Bible, they tell us we are debasing Christ. And so when we defend the authority of Scripture, they say, it is Christ, not the Bible. We don't preach the Bible. We are not concerned that men have a technical view of the Bible. We want them to believe in Christ. But what a false way of presenting it. We want men to believe in Christ too. But do we detract from that aim when we exalt the Bible? Not at all. Now do you see what I'm getting at? Jesus Christ, in a certain sense, is the authority for Scripture. He placed his divine imprimatur upon the Old Testament Scriptures. He spoke of the Holy Spirit to come and made it clear that there would be further revelation. Yes, Jesus is, in a certain sense, the authority for Scripture, but the Scripture is the authority for Christ also. It works both ways. Christ testifies to the Scripture, yes, but the Scripture testifies of Christ. And I just want to say that were it not for the Bible, you wouldn't know anything about Christ. If it were not for the Scriptures, we would know nothing about Jesus. Oh, I'll grant that there might be oral tradition, but just how trustworthy is oral tradition? Have you ever read those passages in the Talmud that purport to refer to Jesus? You're not even sure that they do refer to Jesus. They are so confused, so far removed from the truth, that if they do refer to Jesus, and supposedly they do, you certainly could never get a correct conception of him from that. And if all you and I had was oral tradition, what a garbled picture of Christ we would have. We could then never be sure of anything about Jesus. We might not even know his name. We can't depend upon our own tradition. And you and I know about Jesus Christ because the Bible points us to him. That child's hymn is entirely correct when it says, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now you can say that's naive, and you can reject that, but it's true. And that's the only way we know of Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the Bible, we simply wouldn't know what Christianity was. Oh, conceivably, the Holy Spirit would be saving men. I don't know exactly how. There might be enough of the truth trickled down so that men could believe it. But it's really very questionable whether even that could happen. 
I wonder if we stop to realize how much we owe to the Bible. We would not believe a right about God. We would not believe a right about ourselves. We would not believe a right about our relationship to God were it not for the Scriptures. And I think, my friends, in our prayer, when we express our gratitude to God for all that he has done, let us not forget to thank him for the Scriptures. I think we should do everything we can to overthrow this modern attitude of depreciating the Bible as though somehow it's something to be ashamed of, that we can simply tear it to pieces with all the radical forms of higher criticism and then have what they call new and exciting dimensions of Christianity. You can't do it. And these men who bring in these new and exciting dimensions of Christianity are bringing in something that isn't Christianity at all. You can't have any Christianity without the Bible. And the authority of the Bible, my friends, really resides in the fact that it is the word of God. God has spoken. It is his word. And all that, says, all that God says is true. And that's why there's no error in the Bible. It's because God has spoken. That is why it is infallible, because God has spoken. That is why you can believe everything that it teaches, because God has spoken. That is why you can be sure that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners, because God has spoken. That is why you can be sure that the biblical analysis of yourself and myself is true. It's because God has spoken. It's why you can be sure that death does not separate us from the love of God, because God has spoken. The authority of the Bible resides in the fact that it is the word of God, the word that God has spoken to us. And may we so receive it joyfully as they once did, not as the word of man, but as the word of God.